David Platt said, if we want to know the glory of God, if we want to experience the beauty of God, and if we want to be used by the hand of God, then we must live in the word of God. There is nothing in this world as powerful, as formative, as life-changing as the word of God. Hebrews 13, 11.3, excuse me, says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Psalm 33, 9, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Romans 4.17 says, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Right? You understand, we don't create anything. Only God can create. Right? We, we can fashion things out of other things that already exist. But we can't create anything. Only God can. And of course, we find the description of all of that happening in Genesis chapter 1, where in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verses 6 and 7, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, verses 14 and 15, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And it was so, verses 20 and 21, God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, verses 20, and 27 God said let us make man in our image and about after our likeness so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them just how powerful is this word of God the fact is there's nothing else like it everything that was created was created by the word of God that isn't just a history lesson, by the way, something that happened in the past because Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. Proverbs 4.22 says the words of God are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. John 17.17 17 says the word is truth. He didn't say it was truth. Psalm 119.105 says God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This word of God, this truth, this life, this healing, this lamp, this light, this word of God that is living and active by which everything that exists was created. This word of God that was breathed out by him, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This word of God that formed mankind, who breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This same word of God has been given to you and me as a divine miracle, a supernatural gift intended to light our path, to show us the way, to teach us, to heal us, to strengthen strengthen us, to protect us, to guide us through this life. Just let that sink in a moment. The same God who spoke the universe into existence 
has spoken directly to you and me. And just to be sure we don't forget what he's telling us, he had some of his best men write it down so we could keep going back to it so that we could keep feeding on it for our every need. The prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. There is nothing in this world or outside of this world like the word of God. Nothing compares to it. Nothing measures up to it. Nothing rivals it. Nothing can contain it, disprove it, or defeat it. It is life to those who find it, and it is healing to their flesh. As a follower of Christ, all that you have to do in order to receive all of that that the Word of God has to offer you is to read it and then honor it. Live it out in your own life. You just do what it says and you'll find that power, that healing, that strength, that life, that light, that truth. You will find all of that living and active in your own life. And honestly, when you think about it, at at least at a surface level, it seems like it would be the easiest thing in the world for people to do, and yet it is proven to be one of the hardest things in the world for people to do. Honoring God's word, that has been an epic struggle for human beings since the dawn of humankind. Why? Because the truth, although for the most part not complicated, right? it's not hard to understand, but it's also not always easy to do what it says, because often God's word requires us to live in a way that is counter to our human nature. Right, denying ourselves, dying to what we naturally desire, denouncing our former lives and following Christ is not really that hard to understand, but it can be supremely difficult to actually do that at times. And certainly the Israelites were living examples of that in our story as we continue working our way through the book of Joshua. Okay? When it came to honoring God's word, uh, it was a bit of a mixed bag for them then, just as it is, if we're being honest, for most of us today. And yet when the people of Israel would commit to honoring God's word, the results were nothing short of astounding. And therein lies the lesson for all of us, because honoring God's word at times will mean you'll have to make some very difficult choices. You'll have to do some things you'd rather not do, which is why we struggle with honoring his word as much as we do. But as difficult as that can be at times, it's the difference between success and failure, between victory and defeat, between fulfillment and want. And yet it's more than just that. Because for the Christian to honor God's word, listen, to honor God's word is the only way. It's the only way to be true to who you actually are as a follower of Christ, which means for the Christian to not honor God's word is to live a counterfeit life. Because we were created according to his word. We were called according to his word and we're commanded to live according to his word. And so anything short of that, we're living a double life, an inauthentic life. We're pretending to be something that we're not. Which is precisely, by the way, why there are so many Christians today who are so dissatisfied with their lives, who struggle to find contentment, who never feel like they're where they could be or should be, because whether they realize it or not, they're living inauthentic lives. They're trying to find happiness and contentment while living lives that do not honor God's word. And I'm just telling you, that's a losing proposition every single time. The Israelites had to learn this the hard way, but as we'll see in our story, they were starting to get it. They were learning. The only way to live the life that God created you to live is to honor his word. And look, that's the only way any of us is ever going to find that sense of purpose and fulfillment that, that we also desperately want in our lives. It only comes when you are being authentically you. And the way you do that as a Christian is to honor God's word in your life every day. 
All right, so let's pick the story up right where we left off last time and see what that looks like. We'll begin at Joshua chapter 10. We'll read the first five verses, Joshua 10, 1 through 5. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he'd done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Ahoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So several Canaanite cities have already fallen to Joshua and the Israelites in battle. And then in chapter 9, the Gibeonites peacefully, although through deception, if you'll hear, you, you were here, you remember, they convinced Israel to make a covenant with them, which means Joshua and the Israelites now effectively control the central plateau of Canaan, thereby separating the northern and southern regions of Canaan. And so now five kings of, uh, of the Amorites in the southern area who've been watching these other cities fall or give up one by one, they decide they need to take back some of that strategic ground in the middle. So they band together to fight, not against the Israelites directly, because number one, they've already seen what the Israelites can do. And secondly, they want control of the ever important Beth Horon Pass, which runs between the uh, the hill country and the Judean wilderness near Gibeon. So they decide to attack the Israelites' newest allies, the Gibeonites, because of their strategic location and probably also because uh, Gibeon was a royal city and all its men were warriors, according to verse 2. Because if these, if these Amorite kings could take over Gibeon and its military, that would significantly bolster their own forces with additional resources and men to be able to fight against Israel later, or at least they think. Uh, and so something else to keep in mind here, because these Amorites who are about to attack Gibeon weren't your run-of-the-mill Canaanites. They, these were the giant clans that occupied the southern part of Canaan. Okay? Uh, first of all, the city of Hebron, mentioned in verse 3, was formerly called Kiriath Arba, which we learn in Joshua chapter 14, and Kiriath Arba was the, uh, the city of the Anakim giant clan described in Numbers chapter 13. The very same giants in the very same city that the Israelites were afraid to conquer under Moses, which led to their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And interestingly, as a side note, in Joshua 14, Caleb, the only spy other than uh, Joshua, who did not fear the Anakim giants, ends up being given Hebron as his own inheritance, as God promised in Numbers 14, which just goes to show you uh, that God honors those who honor his word. Back to the story, because not only are these people of Hebron who are now coming up against Gibeon, a giant clan of the south, literally a clan of giant people, but it gets even worse than that for Gibeon because all throughout Deuteronomy, also in Amos and Numbers, by the way, the term Amorites was used as a reference for all of the giant clans of southern Canaan on both the eastern and western sides of the Jordan. We know that the Amorite king, Sion of Heshbon and Og, the king of Bashan, were both descended from the giant clans of the Anakin and Raphaim, who migrated into Canaan probably back in the third millennium BC. In fact, uh, the size of King Og's bed 
is described in Deuteronomy chapter 3 as a bed made of iron, nine cubits long and four cubits wide. That's 13 feet long and six feet wide. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Kenny? Yeah, yeah, a couple of, a couple of you guys could use a bed that size. Look, it's not just the Bible, by the way, fascinating, that gives us a historical record of these giant clans. We have Ugaritic texts from the city of Ugarit, which is known as Tel Rashamra. It's in northern Syria today, where we have excavated a treasure trove of ancient texts, what many consider to be one of the most uh, important archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. And these texts outline and confirm and expand upon, in detail, by the way, many of the places and events in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and in those texts, we have descriptions of the giant Raphaim clans living in Bashan. The point being that although the giant clans east of the Jordan had already been wiped out by Moses and the Israelites earlier, these five armies coming up to Gibeon now from west of the Jordan are alive and well and descendant of the giant Amorite clans of the south. So this isn't just a problem for Gibeon. This is a big problem, literally and figuratively. Okay, let's keep reading verses 6 through 10. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. So the Amorites come up from the south to attack Gibeon, and in response, the Gibeonites send for Joshua to come and save them from what is otherwise certain death. And so the Lord says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That's almost verbatim what God said to Moses back in Numbers 21 as the Israelites were about to do battle with the giant king Og of Bashan. And so Joshua and God's people waste no time. They immediately get up. They march through the night to get to Gibeon and defeat the invading armies of the southern clans of Canaan, which in and of itself is an incredible testament to the Israelites' commitment to honoring God's word, specifically the covenant that was made between them and the Gibeonites. Because right before this, just in the previous chapter, you'll remember if you were here, the Israelites wanted to kill the Gibeonites for deceiving them. And they were intent on doing so because verse 26 of chapter 9 tells us that Joshua delivered them, referring to the Gibeonites. Joshua delivered the Gibeonites out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. So clearly the Israelites are not going up to Gibeon because of their strong affection for the people of Gibeon. They're also not going up there because it appears to be an easy fight. Now they're going up against five armies of giants. So why in the world would they even bother? Why muster all of your fighting men to march 19 miles uphill the whole way, by the way. Gibeon was 3,300 feet in elevation higher right, than Gilgal. So 19 miles uphill through the night to make war against five enemy armies of unusual size and strength in defense of a city full of people that you can't stand. Why would you do that? 
It's because there was a covenant between them. And their word meant something back then. God's word clearly stated, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Numbers 32. In other words, if you say something, you'd better mean it. See, the Israelites chose to honor God's word, and honoring God's word means we fight for each other. Just, just think of how easy it would have been, how convenient it would have been for Joshua and the Israelites to not go up to Gibeon. Right? In many ways, this would have actually solved their problem of being stuck with a group of people who took advantage of them, who lied to them and tricked them into making a covenant with them to begin with. And now all Joshua has to do is not go up to Gibeon and let the Amorites solve his problem for him. But Joshua did go up. He did go up to Gibeon because he made a covenant with them. And now no matter how big or how bad the armies were that were waiting for him there, he intended to honor God's word by fighting for God's people. Psalm 82.4 says, Rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The Apostle John said, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3.16, the Apostle Paul said, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, Honoring God's word means no one fights alone. When there's a need, we stand up and we go to that need. Wherever it is, whenever it is, whatever it is, no matter what we may face when we get there. Okay, look, you understand, you cannot honor God's word while ignoring the needs of God's people. You cannot honor God's word while ignoring the needs of God's people. You can't do both. You cannot honor his word and turn a blind eye to the troubles of your brother or sister in Christ at the same time. Those two uh, dispositions are entirely incompatible, which means our relationship with others and especially with other believers have to be deeper than surface level so that we're able to recognize the needs in other people's lives when they arise. Because look, you probably know this. There are people all around you every single day who are fighting giants in their lives. They should never have to do that alone. Look, we're being hypocritical. If we breeze in and out of church or in and out of the coffee shop or in and out of our friend's house with little to no concern about how those around us are actually doing. It's hypocritical. It's inauthentic because that's not who we actually are. No, we're God's people who are called to lay our lives down for one another, to love each other the way that Jesus loves us. So we always approach our relationships with a genuine interest and a real concern for one another. And then, look, when the call comes, when our brother or sister has a battle to fight, we get up, we get moving, and we fight alongside them every step of the way because the kingdom of God is no one fights alone. I say it all the time. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. No one fights alone. Listen, as a pastor, I certainly hope that everyone always likes everyone else in the church. That'd be great. But the fact is, how much you like or dislike someone should have absolutely nothing to do with your willingness to stand up and fight for that person. The Israelites were in no way fond of the Gibeonites. They couldn't stand them. And yet when the call came through the dead of night, the people of God were stirred to get up and get moving and make war against the enemies of the Gibeonites. Why? Because honoring God's word meant fighting for each other. And the Gibeonites had been grafted into the family of God. So let me just be bold for a moment and ask you, who are you fighting for right now in your life? Because if the answer is no one, 
then the truth is you're not being the man or woman God created you to be. There should never be a time in your life when you're not fighting for someone else. Because first of all, there are always people around you who are fighting giants in their own lives. And if we're not fighting with them, then we're not being authentic Christians. We live counterfeit lives when we're indifferent to the battles that other people are facing. And listen, if your answer is that you're simply unaware of any battles that anyone else in your life is facing, then your relationships are probably too shallow. Because there's always someone to pray for. There's always someone to provide for. There's always someone to protect. There's always someone to pick up off the battlefield while you finish the fight together. 30 years of church ministry. I've never had a day yet when I didn't have someone to pray for. Someone to help. Someone to provide for. Someone to, to give advice to. To guide. To fight alongside. Not a day. So don't be afraid to go deeper in your relationships. Don't be afraid to be authentic. Don't be afraid to love so deeply and care so wholeheartedly that you're willing to face any giant, anytime, anywhere for the sake of your fellow man. Because honoring God's word means we fight for each other. Let's keep reading verses 11 through 15. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down to the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So Joshua and the Israelites are locked in battle with the Amorites. Keep in mind, there were five armies combined that the Israelites were trying to uh, defeat, right? That's a whole lot of people to have to fight at one time, and they're starting to get away. So Israel gives chase, but there's simply not enough time in the day to kill them all. So Joshua does something that's never been done before or since. He speaks to the Lord, and he commands the sun and the moon to stand still, or more specifically for the, the earth to slow its rotation, to give them daylight for a long enough period of time to finish the fight, to finish killing the enemy. And as proof that this really happened, Joshua points out that these events were recorded in the book of Jasher, which as far as we know is a lost book. However, listen, there are records and traditions from ancient nations all over the world that tell of one long day in their history, including Greece and Egypt and others in the Eastern Hemisphere, while many other nations in the Western Hemisphere have recorded legends of one long night, such as the American Indians and the South Sea Islanders and others. So there are actually many corroborating historical accounts of this one long day or one long night, depending upon which side of the earth you were on when it happened. And yet even with extending, uh, the extending of the day, and even though the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, the Israelites still could not kill all of the Amorites on their own. There's so many of them. In fact, 
they couldn't even kill half of them. And so in addition to all of that help from God, verse 11 says, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So God killed more than half of them with hailstones. Of course, there's always someone at this point in the story who tries to say, well, you know, this was a natural phenomenon that happened and it was just happened to be the right timing to kill all these people as this huge hailstorm came up at just the right moment. Well, first of all, there are about five, maybe eight days a year of hail per year in the coastal plain. And that's all during midwinter. This was midsummer. And by the way, not one of the Israelites was killed by the same hail. Right? While over half the Amorites were wiped out. This, this is no mere coincidence. It certainly wasn't dumb luck. This was God fighting for his people. Okay, honoring God's word means he fights for you, which honestly has to be the case in the battles that we face in this life because even with all of our own effort and even with the help of others, it's never enough. We still need God to fight for us, and he will as we honor his word. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul wrote, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing uh, and will do the things that we command. Second Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4. In other words, as you continue to honor the word of the Lord, he will establish you and fight for you as you honor his word. And yet far too many people, for, for far too many Christians, God is a last resort. He's the one we look to to fight for us after we've exhausted all of our other options. Just look at how he fought for the people of Israel, right? He didn't wait to see what happened, and then only after they had fought all they could, he stepped in at the end. No, the Lord threw the Amorites into a panic as soon as the Israelites showed up, and then he threw hailstones down on them and killed over half of the enemy troops in the middle of the battle, and then toward the end of the battle, he extends the day so that Joshua and his men could clean up what was left after God had already decimated their enemies. So why in the world... Do we wait until we've exhausted all our resources and all our help and all our energy and all our abilities to fight our own battles before we call on God to fight for us late in the battle when all along he's ready to fight for you now? In fact, he's ready to go before you to fight for you so that he can hand you the victory when you get there. God is not the last resort. He's the first priority in every battle that we face and honoring his word means seeking him first before anyone or anything else. That was the key to every victory for Joshua and the Israelites when they made God their first priority. When Joshua would seek out the Lord before even getting out of his tent, God would go on before them and he would fight on their behalf. In the times when they tried to fight their battles on their own, they were beaten soundly. Okay, God fights for us. But we have to acknowledge him first. We have to seek him first. We have to make him our priority first. This is what honoring his word looks like. It's actually having a greater concern for obeying his commands than our concern for the battle we're facing, even while we're facing it. And that's, that's really tough for most of us to do because when we're facing a battle in our lives, our human nature is to become fixated on the battle rather than on God and his word. Listen, T Timothy Keller said, look at Jesus Christ. Every time he was in trouble, he used the word of God. When he was tempted, he used the word. When he was suffering on the cross, he used the word. 
Because the key to overcoming the battle is God fighting for you, and the key to God fighting for you is honoring his word, making him your first and greatest concern in all things. And so for a Christian to become more consumed with personal battles than they are with God, which is commonplace in the church, for a Christian to become more consumed with a personal battle than they are with God is to live in inauthentic faith. It's a counterfeit testimony to the world because that's not who we are. Listen, followers of Jesus Christ are not simply people who are acquainted with Christ. We're people who are consumed with Christ. So consumed, in fact, that we're more concerned with him than we are with our personal battles, which is not only an authentic expression of our faith in Christ, but it's the key to seeing him fight in our battles. When we remain fixated on him in every circumstance, every struggle, every giant that comes against us, we keep our hearts and minds fixed on Christ, and we let him fight for us. Let's keep reading, verses 16 through 21. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have, found, have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack the rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. So the Amorites are soundly beaten by God, both through the Israelites' efforts and his own intervention directly. And in the process, nearly all of their enemies are killed with the exception of a remnant who then make it back to their enemy cities. And then, of course, the five kings who decided to hide in a cave as their means of escape, which has now become their prison. They're still alive in the cave. And as a result God, of God moving so powerfully on their behalf, Joshua says, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. When you translate that phrase literally from the ancient Hebrew, it says, no one sharpened his tongue against any of the people of Israel. In other words, there was a fear and a reverence for God and his people to the point that no one would even speak an evil word against them, which I believe, by the way, is a prophetic picture of the end of days when Christ returns and the final battle is fought and his enemies will never again be able to speak an evil word against Jesus Christ or his church. Let's read verses 22 through 27. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. 
And then the, the remaining verses of this chapter, which we won't read through today, are a list of the remaining cities in southern Canaan that Joshua conquers, including those with the remnant Amorites who escaped back to their city. So Joshua wipes them all out with only the five kings who were hiding out in a cave left to deal with. And so Joshua has them brought out and he instructs his commanders to put their feet on the necks of these five kings. These are his greatest of fighting men, Joshua's the leaders of the, of the tribes, his greatest commanders, and, and then Joshua says something interesting. He repeats to his commanders nearly the same phrase that God spoke to Moses before his battle with the giants, and nearly the same phrase that God spoke to Joshua right before he faced these giant Amorites in battle. He says to his commanders, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So Joshua has to bolster the courage of these men as they put their feet on the necks of these five defeated giant kings from the Amorite clans, mighty and imposing warriors who ruled over a proud people. Even in defeat, apparently they must have been very intimidating, but Joshua says be strong and courageous because he knew all the way back in verse 8 that God made a promise when he said to Joshua before the battle even began, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before you. And here they are, five of them, laid out on the ground. And in that moment, his leaders put their feet on the back of the necks of the five of the greatest kings in all of Canaan. And Joshua knew that God had fulfilled his promise. You see, honoring God's word means his promises are fulfilled in your life. God made the promise before Joshua ever left his camp at Gilgal, but Joshua still had to do his part. He still had to honor God's word. He still had to face the enemy and fight the battle before he could enjoy the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, when, when we face battles, these giants in our lives, God promises never to leave us or forsake us. He promises to go before us. He promises to fight for us. But we still have to face our fears and fight our battles. We still have to honor his word just as the Israelites had to honor God's word as they faced these kings and their armies in order to see the promise fulfilled. It's just why we need more than a cursory reading, a casual reading of a few encouraging verses in the Bible when we're facing real battles in life. I mean, I appreciate devotionals. Those are great, it's fine. But you need more than that in your life to face the reality of, of the things, the battles that will come in your life. Listen, his promises for us are all tied up in his word for us. You cannot honor his word if you don't know what his word says. And honestly, Having a handful of go-to encouraging Bible verses isn't going to cut it when you have to battle real giants in your life. Jeremiah 29, 11 is awesome. It's not enough. Just ask anyone who's ever gone through a life-changing battle, something that rocked them to their core. I was just talking to my friends about it back here today. You know what I'm talking about. Right? As nice as it is to hear from a hundred people, hey man, take heart. God's with you. I'm praying for you. That's nice. That's good. Encouraging comments and spiritual one-liners aren't going to get you through the battle, though. You have to go deeper into the source of truth and understanding. You have to go deeper into God's word if you expect to know what to do. You have to go deeper if you want to know what he has to say about the giants that you're facing in life. You have to go deeper if you're going to understand exactly what you're promised on the other side of that battle. It's more than a one-liner or one verse in the Bible. Besides, none of us should ever be satisfied with our current understanding of God's word, no matter what level of understanding that is. 
whether you read it every single day or hardly at all, every one of us should be hungry for a deeper understanding of God's word because it is in the depths of fellowship with his word that we receive our instructions for battle when we're facing giants in our lives. And it is in the depths of fellowship with his word that we hear him say, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. It is in the depths of fellowship with his word that his promises are revealed to us. And that's how we're able to face our fears and fight our battles with confidence that his promises will be fulfilled in our lives but it hinges on our awareness and understanding of what he's actually saying to us and that means honoring his word by devouring his word just as jeremiah said your words were found and i ate them and your words became to me a joy and delight of my heart listen consuming god's word is far more than a cursory reading Listen to this, and I'm, I'm wrapping up. There's a book titled If by Mark Batterson. And in it, he writes about a famous neurosurgeon named Dr. Wilder Penfield. It might, it, we may have it on the screen. I don't know. This is a quote from Batterson's book. He says, by the end of his distinguished career as a pioneering neurosurgeon, Dr. Wilder Penfield had performed brain surgery on 1,132 patients. Many of them suffered from epileptic seizures, and Dr. Penfield wanted to know why. With the help of local anesthesia, the tops of patients' skulls were removed, but they remained conscious during the surgery so they could converse with Dr. Penfield. During one of those open brain operations, Dr. Penfield made a fascinating discovery. When he used a very mild electrical current to stimulate different parts of the cortex, some of Dr. Penfield's patients experienced flashbacks, vivid memories from past events that replayed in their mind's eye. One patient recalled every note from a symphony she had heard of a, at a concert many years before. Another patient recalled sitting at a train stop as a child and she gave a detailed description of each train car as it went by in her memory. Another patient visualized a childhood comb and was able to recount the exact number of teeth it had. Beyond the detailed recollection, the thing that struck Dr. Penfield about these memories was the fact that many of them were all but forgotten. In fact, some of them predated his patient's earliest memories. Dr. Penfield concluded that every sight, every sound, every experience, every conscious thought and subconscious dream is recorded on our internal hard drive, the cerebral cortex. Here's how the complex, complex process works in simplified terms. When you hear a song, see a picture, or read a verse of scripture, an engram is traced on the surface of the cerebral cortex. That encoding is also called a memory trace, and it's how we walk down memory lane, almost like a deluxe etch-a-sketch. Songs and pictures and words get traced and retraced. With each repetition, the engram gets inscribed deeper and deeper until it's literally engraved on the surface of the cerebral cortex. And he says, since Jesus is the embodiment of the word, meaning the Bible is Jesus in words, that means when you pray or meditate or memorize the word of God, you're engraving Jesus on your brain. Wow. You see, the more we consume God's word, the more it literally becomes a part of who we are. It shapes us. It shapes our thinking, it shapes our worldview, it changes how we see life and others and even the battles that we face because when we consume God's word, it begins to consume us until everything in our life is viewed through the lens of scripture and that, that's how we honor his word, by feeding on it, 
until it literally becomes a part of our very makeup, engraved on our brains and on our hearts. Okay, we all face battles in life. We all have giants at times in our lives that try to overtake us, that, tr that try to take from us our joy, our peace, our health, our provision, our confidence, our resolve, our relationships. And these, these giants, they don't respect God or his word because they don't know God or his word. The truth is, these giants in our lives, they don't have the power to actually take anything away from you that God has already promised you. Do you understand that? The only thing the giants can do is stir up enough fear in your heart and mind that you defeat yourself. That's what kept happening to the Israelites in the previous chapters. We've seen it over and over again. When they refused to honor God's word, they defeated themselves. But that didn't have to be the case for them, and it doesn't ever have to be the case for you because the very same God who spoke the universe into existence, that very same God is speaking directly to you and me. And if we would just honor that by consuming those words that he's spoken to us until they shape our very identity, then our lives become authentic, the promises become clear, and everything else becomes secondary. The giants that come against us and the battles we face, they no longer define us because what they have to say to us just simply doesn't matter anymore in light of what he's saying to us. Listen, there are people, and, I, I, and it's a privilege to help hurting people, but there are so many people who come and they're defined by their problem. They've allowed their life to become defined by the struggle in their life, the giant they face. They've lost sight of who God is and what his word says about them. Okay. When you focus on Christ and his word, everything else in your life, including the giants you face, become secondary. They will no longer define you. doesn't mean it all goes away on a nice... Neat bow gets tied off. We still have to walk through life. It's messy. But you'll no longer be defined by those struggles in your life. Because they simply won't matter in light of what God says about who you are and what he's doing in your life. That's when you'll find yourself, by the way, able to fight for someone else. That's when you'll be able to recognize that God is always fighting for you. And that's when his promises are fulfilled in your life because honoring God's word is no longer just something you do. It actually becomes who you are. And that is the most authentic life you could ever live. Let's pray.